Monolithic relational databases are the traditional foundation of financial code ledger systems. Nevertheless, the process of building and operating mission-critical financial ledgers on these databases and implementing homegrown accounting models is a journey fraught with engineering challenges. TWISP has set out to rethink the underlying technology for financial ledger systems by combining the operational and scaling characteristics of a distributed database, the correctness guarantees offered by relational databases with pre-built accounting primitives while fully leveraging the modern cloud. In this episode, we speak to Michael Parsons, co-founder and CTO of TWISP. To learn more about TWISP and get access to a sandbox ledger, go to twisp.com. This episode is hosted by Alex Debris. Alex is the author of the DynamoDB book, The Comprehensive Guide to Data Modeling with DynamoDB, as well as the DynamoDB Guide, a free guided introduction to DynamoDB. He runs a consulting company where he assists clients with DynamoDB data modeling, serverless architectures, and general AWS usage. You can find more of his work at alexdebris.com. Mike Parsons, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Alex, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So you're the CTO and co-founder of TWISP. We had your, your other co-founder, Jared, was, was on Software Engineering Daily uh, recently. But for, for those that don't know, could you tell us more about what TWISP is, which, what you're doing at TWISP? Yeah. Uh, so TWISP is a, uh, a ledger accounting system in the cloud, uh, API-based. Um, the whole idea was to have a set of primitives that felt like an AWS service um, for accounting and ledgering. And we were surprised that AWS itself doesn't offer exactly that. Um, you see things like uh, Elastic where it's full text search uh, as a service or um, uh, some of the ML offerings where they can do text classification as a service. And so it was interesting to us as, as co-founders who have a background in financial services, that uh, these higher level primitives weren't available. And so we set out to make them. Um, and the story of that is uh, long. And I, I think we can get into it a little bit here today. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to hear about your background and how you went down this road. But first, let's, let's just talk about ledgers, because I think over the last couple of years, whenever I hear the word ledger, I, I hear distributed ledger automatically goes to, to crypto and, and things like that. But that's not quite what, what TWISP is. So, um, you know, maybe for even those that don't have an accounting background, like what what is a ledgering system and, and what does that mean outside of the, the crypto context? Yeah, so I mean, from from a, a fundamental uh, usage of the word ledger, what we take that to mean is an append-only data structure, um, and so we use that lower-level primitive to build higher-order primitives like accounting systems. And when you're dealing with accounting systems, you're dealing with like the usual things: transactions, journal entries, a chart of accounts of some sort, and a, a way to compute balances across. Uh, different dimensions uh, of accounts or, uh, and time periods. Uh, so for, for us, um, that's what we mean by a ledger accounting system is something more closely that you'd find in a, a core banking system or in a payments uh, uh, system where you're trying to keep track of balances for, for different accounts. Yeah. I, I remember taking accounting classes in high school, which I thought were super interesting. But yeah, that, that ledger notion, um, very powerful. I guess, how did... 
how did you get into this? Do you have an accounting background? Like what led you to, to want to build um, this, this ledger primitive? I do not have an accounting background. Uh, I started my software engineering journey on a different kind of rails, uh, writing train software for positive train controls. And uh, this is early 2000s, uh, writing C code. Um, this, the second uh, dot-com boom was getting underway. And uh, I uh, was fortunate to, to land a job in, in that sec uh, sector at a company called Seamless Web. Uh, they were doing online food ordering so uh, for law firms in, in New York City. And so uh, I thought it was kind of cool that you could uh, place, place an order in a menu and it would get faxed to a restaurant and somebody would pick up a piece of paper and say, oh, yes, this is uh, Mike wants some Thai food. We're going to make that for him and uh, he can come pick it up or we'll drop it off to him. And so uh, building those systems uh, is obviously the first exposure I had to like a multi-sided market. Uh, and uh, payment integrations. Uh, we were using Chase Payment Tech at the time uh, in a very low-level way. There wasn't cool tools like Stripe or or um, Braintree out there to do uh, payment processing. So that's where I really had my first encounter with uh, the financial system was uh, doing invoicing, processing payments, making sure orders settled, uh, things of that nature. Uh, later on, I... I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I kept hearing about a company called Simple, where they were making a bank that didn't suck. And this was right after the financial crisis, and that message really resonated with me. Uh, and so I put an application in and was fortunate enough to uh, get hired there. And that's where the the real the real learning began, <laughs> where. Uh, you're not now. You're interacting on the issuing side of uh, of uh, card issuing. You're uh, building accounting systems, keeping track of all different types of payment instruments, and uh, really just learning the hard lessons of running a running a bank from essentially first principles. Again, uh, one of the interesting things about banking is they were the first industry to really adopt computing, and once they solved all their problems, they stopped, and so. <laughs> Uh, you, you have to go and relearn all these lessons to make uh, banking not suck. And so that's what we did at Simple for, for many years. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure you just have a, a ton of, you know, deep domain, domain expertise on this, both from, from Seamless and, and Simple. Like who needs this sort of ledger technology? Is it, is it mostly banks like Simple or, or like, you know, multi-sided marketplaces? Like who, who needs a ledger? Uh, any company that is dealing with money inside of their product is who we have a strong opinion needs a, a ledger. So a marketplace would, um, a, a, obviously neobanks would, folks who are doing embedded finance where maybe they're, they have a, a, a lending program inside their e-commerce platform, uh, they'll want to have uh, a ledgers. Um, they're actually fairly pernicious throughout the industry as well, like insurance. When you create an insurance claim, that's a line in a ledger. Uh, the, the payout is also a line in a ledger. So it's this ubiquitous thing that has a lot of uh, a, a lot of different uses across different industries. 
Um, and oftentimes, uh, when you're innovating product, you're not going to bring in the SAP system and hook that up to your React app, right? And so that's yeah. uh, that's been a, a huge challenge. Is like how do you uh, build these systems that have strong guarantees about the about the numbers um, without spending twelve million dollars to to get the licensing and uh, and use a worse product at the end of the day? Yeah. And one thing you were telling, I think we were talking, and you said even like games, right? Games that have in-game economies, they need to, they need this sort of thing. So not even, you know, real money in a sense, but, but, but money that's, you know, representing something in a game needs this sort of thing as well. Yeah, that's, that's a super interesting thing is uh, a lot of in-game economies also interact with the real world as well. So uh, you can earn things by accomplishing things in a game and they'll give you some sort of token that represents uh, a currency you can use to upgrade your character or, or buy things with, um, or you you know you could do the Mike method where you just get out the credit card and say, "I suck at this game. <laughs> give me the upgrade. Give me more card. jewels, right? Yeah, give me everything <laughs> right. I need. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's very important to uh, it's very important to get numbers right, even in that context, because uh, when you get the numbers wrong, uh, it it violates a trust, right? And it's it's kind of silly humans, even at, in a video game where uh, if they took away your token and you, and you don't have a clear reason why you don't have that token anymore, uh, you get mad. You get mad at the game. You, uh, and, and, uh, and, and so having good numbers that are, are, are kind of the foundation of, of building trust. Like you have to have that. It's table stakes. But oftentimes like table stakes, things are extremely difficult to deliver on. Uh, and, and I think, I think that's where you start to, or at least that's how we view the world is, um, when you need a world-class result just to get to the table stakes, uh, maybe it's a good time to find someone who's really good at that and, and have them do that work while you layer on top the things that you do well. Yeah, um, and absolutely. I think that's been a theme of, of learning about, how to build systems and and software over the years that uh, that we've that we've encountered. Absolutely, and I want to I want to talk about the special challenges of sort of payments and accounting and all that stuff. Um, one last thing, just to like, I still feel like I'm orienting myself on terms of where Twist fits in, and in terms of fintech or payments, I I think of Stripe, you know, as as like the the big gorilla in the room. Like, where does Twist fit in relation to Stripe? If I'm a company, am I using sort of both Stripe and Twist in some ways, or is is Twist replacing part of Stripe? Or like, like does Twist actually issue the payments? Where where does Twist fit um, in relation to something like Stripe? Yeah. So at at the risk of uh, finding a horse head in my bed, uh, we view ourselves as a complement to Stripe. Now, uh, Stripe is, is, as you said, is a behemoth. They have yeah. a, a treasury product. They have a, a Connect, which is a multi-sided market product. Um, they have acquiring products for just regular payments. All kinds of different things you can do on Stripe. Uh, you can adopt the Stripe ecosystem wholesale and center your whole business around Stripe and, and grow and become massively successful and rely on their accounting. Um, the the key here is like when you want to uh, when you have the capability to venture out on your own. Let's say uh, you're using Stripe Connect, everything's going good, 
but you don't like the way payouts work in Stripe. So you might spin up a partnership with a with a banking partner and start sending ACHs so you have full control over how pay, payouts work. You might have you might decide, hey, we want to do payouts. Uh, we have a banking partner. We're going to actually do accelerated payouts where we're going to have a line of credit and we're going to issue a payout that way. As soon as you add that second party, that's when you need to be in control of your destiny on the accounting side. You need to know what the balance of the customer's account is. You need to know what the balance on the line of credit is. And so introducing an accounting system in that context makes a ton of sense. Uh, another use case might be uh, just picking on Stripe a little bit for a moment is, wow, this other company has way cheaper rates for, for cards. We need the ability to to maybe load balance or uh, in the case of an outage, switch over to another provider. And in that case, you also want to have a system of record that has uh, uh, the ability to keep track of transactions and balances uh, so that you can have a little bit more control over your own destiny. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I hope you. I hope you survive um, any issues with the the mafia there. But um, in, in terms of, <laughs> in terms, of, let's let's talk about the domain because I find like you know whenever you talk to people that are really in their domain and, and have this system, there are all these just like hidden complexities under the service that you just don't even uh, appreciate or realize, especially when you try and build your own as opposed to to buying something. So. What makes this area particularly complex or what will people underestimate um, as, they're, as they're sort of maybe thinking about doing this themselves as opposed to using Twist? Yeah, so uh, it's really fun to build an accounting system from first principles, right? Because uh, you, you have a lot of success because you can have almost like a spec. Uh, I need accounts, I need transactions, I need journal entries. And I, I can implement this, this, I don't want to call it a toy model, but uh, I can implement a model of my system. And what happens a lot of times in organizations is there's an impetus for doing that activity. Uh, hey, we're going to go offer a, a service or we're going to uh, charge some uh, customers money to use a thing. And so you build your, your best thing from first principles, and then you layer on top of it the, the capability that you need. The complexity happens is uh, when that that third party you're interacting with doesn't quite behave the way that they say they behave, or you're going to introduce new things to the system. And then you do the classic thing, well, I'll just add a column. And uh, I didn't get that fee, so we're going to add a column for a fee. And then you end up with uh, growing sort of an unintended system, uh, where, whereas at the beginning you had something designed from first principles and a, and a and a way to establish uh, the use case you're dealing with. Over time, as you grow, entropy does does weird things with us where it starts to grow the system in a way that you didn't intend uh, or that you didn't have time to uh, address as another big one for uh, organizations. Uh, so uh, we kind of classify that sort of these organizational problems in kind of three ways when we're thinking about this particular problem. The first is that prototype friction. We started with Stripe, and now we want to offer the line of credit. Now you have to have an accounting system, so we built one uh, in-house. Uh, the next uh, level is, uh, hey, our company's grown. This was successful. We're going to offer a ton of different financial services, and we have autonomous teams. And so now all these autonomous teams are repeating that same history in a, in a, in a smaller context, right? So you, you build up this world of accounting where... Team A has the, the the legacy system. Well, that was a bad 
accounting system. We're going to learn our lessons on team B and team C's over here uh, using QLDB or something, right? Uh, so uh, you have uh, you have uh, chaos reigns, and then uh, the last the last thing is a, an expertise bottleneck. Sometimes uh, companies demand way too much out of their software engineering staff, and by sometimes I mean a lot of times. Uh, you got to know CSS, JavaScript. You got to know uh, uh, React. Uh, you should know uh, how to set up the backend for all the APIs. So you need to know a backend programming language, a database. Uh, you need to know everything about our domain. And then we want you to be an accountant on top of that. These unicorn engineers are like, not, they're not just 10X engineers. They're like a billion X engineers. Like it's, it's literally impossible for an organization to staff themselves that way. And then if you do get a person like that, the last thing you want them working on is that is like, at the lowest level of your system uh, with the least amount of leverage, right? That table stake thing where they're going to be mired in like figuring out uh, why the transactions that Stripe don't match the transactions in our, our database. That's going to be a, 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 a waste of talent if you can find that talent. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what we see with this particular domain. I'm sure it's like similar in others, but uh, that that sort of chaos reigns, prototype friction, and and uh, an expertise bottleneck is is where we see a lot of problems. Yeah, and that expertise one I think is is so cr crazy or just hard in when you're talking about money and accounting. Like first of all, there's hundreds of years of experience in this accounting field of of how double entry works and and you know very solid stuff. And if you try to like you know think about it from first principles without understanding accounting, you're going to like implement it in a non-standard way and, and screw something up, you know, in, in a serious way. And then, and then it's somebody's money you're talking about, which is, which is just like one of the worst areas that you, you don't want to be messing up. So I, <laughs> I, I totally get that in terms of like, so you're talking about prototype friction. Is it hard in like, you know, people wanting to add new columns or, or, or figure out band-aids on top of that? Is, is it hard in terms of like how much flexibility you want to offer to people versus like constraining it to like, hey, here are the core concepts and, and maybe it being an education thing? Or is, is that a difficulty you've had in, in sort of um, building twists? I, I think the, um, the building a, a system, a systematic way of adding new new transactions or new funds flows is sort of the, the, the key problem to unlock. Um, even Stripe has this, has this issue in their API where they'll have balanced transactions. It's just their accounting, uh, accounting model, but then they'll have a, a fee number somewhere else. Right. And so uh, those sort of artifacts are a result of like rapid iteration or, you know, finding product market fit. And uh, for, for us, we had to take a step back, observe the landscape and try to try to figure out a way to avoid those problems. And the, the way we address it is with our abstraction called Trancodes. And it's essentially a way to model these, these use cases where a fee is just another, uh, uh, just another journal entry that goes against a fee account. And uh, so we we had the luxury of seeing a, a, a lot of banking systems how they build the, uh, these things, uh, thinking about the problem, trying to hide those uh, details of accounting as well, because uh, a, a lot of times, uh, a, a lot of times when you're when you're in an organization, uh, hey, I'm really good at making the pixels look good and getting information to the back end. 
I don't want to think about <laughs> what fee accounts are involved or what settlement accounts are involved. And even the backend en engineers might not have that interest either. Uh, so there's, there's a, there's a, there's challenges in like, how do you do encapsulation and how do you encapsulate the concerns for uh, accounting? Um, I'm, I'm sure the audience is familiar with Conway's law that organizations produce software that matches the communication pattern of the company. Yeah. Uh, uh, more often than not, when, when engaging companies that are building financial services, the communication pattern between the engineering team and the CFO office is not super clear. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's very difficult to show up in, in, in the software. And so uh, when you're building these accounting systems, like a, a clear sign of success is that uh, a controller and an engineer can sit down and look at the same system and understand the same thing. And, and so that's where, that's where we are sort of measuring our success is can I talk to the CFO office? Can I talk to a product or engineering team? And can they look at this system and, and say clearly that uh, the thing that we want to happen in the product and in the financial system are the same things and uh, represented in the software? Gotcha. And that's where trend codes come in? That's where trend codes Sorry. come in. All right. So, so, so I read your post on yeah. transcode. Yeah. Trend codes. Tell us, tell us what a, uh, a transcode is. Yeah. So a trend code is a, is a way uh, you could think of it as a, as a function or a macro that takes in parameters. Like here's the accounts I care about. Here's the amount that I, that uh, needs to happen. And this is the kind of thing that's occurring. And I'm feeding it to some function that knows how to generate uh, journal entries, essentially. And it knows that we take a fee split. So there should be a, a calculation and a certain set of funds going into a, a fee account. There's a, a, a third party or a counterparty that we need to uh, book uh, uh, the offsetting entry to, uh, book an offsetting entry to the customer account. Uh, maybe inside that trend code, it also has uh, the ability to increment a reward system like uh uh, they, they, this is their, this is the hundredth purchase. So they get a, a $2 bonus. Um, so write that, uh, that transaction as part of it. So there's uh, a, a trend code is a way to encapsulate the accounting details and hide that from, uh, an application developer. So they can focus on, uh, on a narrow set of parameters and not, uh, have to worry about how the accounting is exactly as done in every single use case. Gotcha. So, um, so thinking yeah. like of of Seamless or or DoorDash, that would be like someone places an order, pays for it, and I, I just submit sort of like maybe the card and amount information to a transcode and it's or transcode, and it's going to deduct from my or place a credit against my card, give some money to the restaurant, give some money to Seamless, uh, give some to an issuing fee or the card issuer, things like that. Is that, is that it, am I understanding that correctly? Exactly. And then the name of the game is to identify every time that we have a transaction like this. Uh, so, uh, and finding all of their uh, different variants. So uh, continuing with that example, uh, if we're paying DoorDash to go do our deliveries for us, uh, how do we, how do we book uh, transactions to do the payout side for uh, vendors who are providing services for us? Um, 
and, and so the, the name of the game is uh, uh, for your company is every time you encounter a new funds flow, we create a trend code that encapsulates that type of transaction. And then we have an entire corpus of trend codes that, uh, that we can go and look and see. Like when I book this kind of uh, thing in the code, it said uh, online order. I use the online order code. We know exactly what entries are created uh, from a uh, from a macro perspective, and then we can go look at the implementation and ensure that that's that's what occurred. Um, so the whole goal with Trancodes is lower the possibility of mistakes in accounting, and when they are there are mistakes in accounting, we have a place that's well known to fix them and to um, version those Trancodes or, or create new ones. Uh, and, and uh, apply corrective transactions even. Uh, that might be a trend code in your system. We messed up, we're going to apply a correction. Uh, uh, and, and so building that whole corpus of how does our company interact with finances in our product uh, is, is the name of the game there. Are trend codes composable? Like would I make a trend code for charging to a, a credit card, which, you know, 2.9% or whatever goes to the, the issue or whatever that is. And then I would use that trend code within uh, like any other trend codes that happen to use the card or am I, am I thinking about that incorrectly? I like where you're going with that in our current state. No, but the mental model that we're using is like trend code should be a pure function. And so they should be composable. Um, so our, our current, our current iteration, that is not the case. Um, that's something that our product team is thinking a lot about. Uh, one thing with adding composition is you add complexity, and so you got to weigh you got to weigh the the benefits and risks to that. Um, but in principle, it's 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 possible to do, and that's something that uh, Jared and and the team think about all the time uh, in terms of what uh, developer experience do we want to give uh, engineers uh, the ability to to do as well. Uh, our the way we address that right now is you just create more trend codes uh, yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned sort of the CFO, the comptroller, someone being able to sit down with a backend engineer and, and hash this out or, or at least understand both of them understand what's going on. What's the interface look like for a trend code and, and like how will they, I imagine it's not, it's not a big blob of Python or, or something like that. So how do they sort of, um, you know, both understand what, what's happening in a clear way? What's that interface look like? Yeah. So right. Our, our product is an API product. So right now that is uh, usually that's, Hey, let's open up a lucid. Let's get on a whiteboard. Let's draw up the chart of accounts and the engineer constructs these uh, something that's representative of what's in the chart of accounts and what's, what's on that whiteboard. And it's a GraphQL interface. So a, a number of mutations they could create and, and, uh, and uh, show the, the uh, controller, Hey, this is what, this is, this is what's on the board. Uh, in our next iteration of the product, we hope to have a graphical version of this um, because there, there really isn't a domain specific tool for designing funds flows. It's usually on the whiteboard and it's usually like not just the controller and the, and the engineer. It might be a partner bank uh, and their program manager on the phone explaining to you the nuances of their system. Uh, and you have to discronify like what parts are important to you and what, what aren't. And so, uh, our next iteration of the product will have a, a, a user experience that's not just for developers, but also for accounting type folks to help 
uh, visualize and help construct uh, trend codes over time. Uh, and that that's uh, that that that's when we uh, we think we're going to really hit our stride with bridging that communication gap. Uh, right now, uh, we have a set of print primitives and APIs that allow the engineer to get a little closer to that. Um, and, and it's, it's an iterative process, like, like all product creation. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. When, when I think of, I guess, like, uh, engineering around financial stuff, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very much a combination of OLTP and OLAP, right? Where you have all these transactions coming in all the time, individual records. And again, you can't ever delete those, right? You make corrections by adding on new ones, but you can't delete them. But you also have these analytical needs where you want to be showing um, current account balances or even just like number of transactions over time. How do you, is that something you're providing both sides of that to Twisp users or what's that look like? Yeah, so we're really focused on that OLTP side, the hot interfaces. So uh, like if you open your banking app, uh, in principle, you should be able to hit a twist endpoint to get the balance. Um, when we think about uh, products like banking applications, for example, we like to make the distinction between the accounting and the activity bead. And they have similar but slightly orthogonal concerns. With accounting, you're really focused in on correctness. How? Uh, what is the lineage of numbers that uh, gives me the current balance that I have? With activity, you are um, focused on uh, creating clarity for customers. Like when they look at the activity feed, the first thing they do is add the numbers up and make sure the balance matches. So activity does derive from accounting, but activity has other uh, concerns that are um, that are uh, not directly related to accounting. So for example, uh, let's say we made a mistake uh, and uh, and the number in the accounting system was off. Uh, we might make a corrective transaction that's a void of that of the original transaction and append a new entry that's representative uh, of the uh, corrected transaction. Well, what we might do is attach metadata to the corrective transaction that says, hey, this is uh, voiding this other transaction. And so you should hide myself and the other transaction. And the uh, and then the new transaction shows up in the feed. And so like using metadata to drive the activity feed might be one uh, area where the activity feed is different. Uh, a customer service rep wants to be able to see, hey, there was an error and then there was a correction. The customer might not want to see that. Uh, the customer just might want to see the right the right number all the time. Uh, another case where there's a distinction is is transaction enrichment, uh, and that's like, uh, can I attach geolocation to a transaction? Can I uh, put pictures of, of my food uh, with yeah. the with the restaurant or the receipt uh, yeah. because I'm gonna I need to remind myself to go get it expensed. Uh, so they they have slightly different functions. Uh, now getting to like the OLAP of the of the situation as well. Uh, finance teams uh, have reporting they need to export to corporate accounting systems. You have uh, uh, you want to do an analysis across your whole set of accounts that might be an accounting need. 
The way we address that in TWISP is we export all of our data to Parquet files that allows it to be consumed into any uh, big data system. So uh, I think the flavor of the day right now is, is Snowflake. Uh, Snowflake can read Parquet, uh, no problem. And uh, that's that's the way we, we address the, the OLAP side is make the data available in a well-known uh, schema. On on that same note, let's talk a little bit about just um, what it looks like technically for for you to interact with a new customer. Are you uh, you know are you completely a SaaS and they interact with it via API? Are you deploying into their account or on prem somewhere? What is what does the deployment model for Twisp look like? Yeah, so that, that's an awesome question, and it goes to sort of our the way we view the cloud. Um, Twisp itself is entirely a, a serverless application. It's deployed via CloudFormation. Uh, and so when we think about uh, when we think about what we call our cloud offering uh, is basically an application that's a multi-tenant system and you interact with it purely via API. Um, you have the ability to interact with it with your control plane as well. So we have CloudFormation uh, providers to spin up resources in our system if you choose to go that way. Or you could just use GraphQL and, and create the resources you need to spin up your uh, particular accounting system. Wait, wait, now, so, hold on. Just to make sure I understand that. So you have like CloudFormation custom resources that if I'm making some, if I if I have my DoorDash application and I'm spinning up all this stuff, I can also spin up a Twisp resource as part of CloudFormation? Yeah, exactly. Um, Love that. CloudFormation has their CloudFormation uh, providers. It's kind of like AWS's answers to Terraform providers, as my, my guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we... We implemented that. What our, our original vision was we want to, this thing to look as good as an Amazon Teams, uh, uh, like like we were part of Amazon. And so that's that's the route we went. Um, and that's part of the learning process as well, because uh, it, interestingly enough, uh, the way we write software is different than than other teams write software, as it turns out. And some teams uh, split the infrastructure as code duty to a whole other set of people. And actually that's a friction for, uh, for some teams. And so that was one of the lessons we learned was like, yeah, the cloud formation is cool for people that think like us, but uh, when people don't think like us, they also need to uh, have tools that don't get in their way. Um, so that was a, a pretty interesting learning for us. Uh, so there, there's the cloud model. Um, we have another model called dedicated, and this is for like banks that are very uh, banks or financial institutions or insurance companies that are very concerned about uh, the the criticality of their data. They don't want their data having any neighbors. Uh, they want to live in the country by themselves. And so we offer a dedicated model as well, where we'll spin up an AWS account and deploy Twisp into it. And then it looks and operates and feels just like the cloud account, except for it's it's isolated from everyone else uh, at our layer, and and uh, our customers can uh, interact with that account. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of different deployment models, um, but at the end of the day, they both look like uh, like a typical SaaS uh, cloud infrastructure type of uh, tool that uh, that they're using. Yep, I love that. Um... That, that note you were saying about just how, you know, there are some teams that, that sort of ship like y'all, but, but something that don't. And I've seen, you know, a, a PowerPoint that y'all have about the twist way and how you do engineering. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned fully serverless and, and cloud formation, like how are you sort of 
what are the core tenets of of Twisp and how you how you build Twisp? Yeah, so I th- I think the the proto ideas for how we think about the cloud were, were formed when uh, we got acquired by BBVA. Uh, Jared, my co-founder, and, and myself went up into that uh, into that company, and we were on a team to launch a, a banking as a service application. And that that team was like three people: me and Jared, and our our manager. And then we were assigned a team in Spain to help us. Uh, with engineering effort, and the first thing we 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 knew is like, in order to be successful, we have to have infrastructure out of the way. Uh, that can't be a blocker uh, for us. And so, at that time, it was around 2017, uh, the ideas of serverless, like uh, systems like Lambda, Dynamo, uh, uh, SQS, etc., S3. Uh, were very popular, and there was con- there's this idea that well they're constrained, and we took a sort of uh, a, a, a different take is like maybe we should lean into those constraints and use that as a guide for building good software, and so that was like the original idea, and we built uh, this banking uh, as a service API uh, in a traditional serverless stack now uh, with. API gateways and lambdas, et cetera. Uh, as Jared and I started thinking about this accounting system, we had a, a lot of parallel ideas were uh, coming in the, in the sphere. You're a promoter of some, uh, uh, people like Zach Cantor, um, uh, you know, Brian LaRue, like a lot of people on the internet are talking about how to build serverless uh, systems. And one of the, our take on that was, what if instead of thinking of managed services as managed services, what if we thought of the cloud as an operating system? And how would we build things if we were treating the cloud as an operating system? So what if Lambda was just a CPU core? And what if uh, Dynamo was like a glorified B-tree? Uh, and, and how could you build a system uh, or systems on top of that abstraction? And so that's that's where from a philosophical point of view that we we started that and that's how we uh, started building uh, uh, things the twist way. So, for example, on our team, an engineer is not only building like the API and backend system, but they're also building all the cloud inf- uh, infrastructure to support it. Uh, and, and when I say cloud infrastructure, it's like it's more like AWS offers these abstractions that make it easier to deploy the software. So as part of the application, you're also building to that, those APIs to get your application up and running. Uh, and so the, the essence is to drive, strive for zero toil. That's an that's a aspiration. doesn't always work out that way. Um, yeah. But that, that's, that's the direction we're going. So you won't see a ton of containers or Kubernetes clusters in our stuff. We don't have a, a, a big SRE function in terms of like, uh, provisioning a platform for the engineers to build on. We view AWS itself as that platform. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And I love just seeing teams where, you know, the, the application developers are not just writing the backend code, but they're actually provisioning that infrastructure. I think you have so much more power and just speed and agility when you're not waiting around for someone else. When you, you know, I think they're the tooling and sort of the abstractions have gotten there that, you can do this a lot quicker. There's a little bit of a learning curve and then um, you can really do some amazing things. 
Um, any like particular services or patterns or things that you tried using and then were just like, oh man, this this ended up being a nightmare and, and sort of ripping it out or, or any any horror stories there or, or even good stories if you have some too. Yeah, so I mean, I'm always trying new stuff uh, yeah. and we we had a period of time where we were doing consulting and uh, this, this shop was building a, a loan origination system on top of Salesforce. And so like whenever a, a software engineer encounters Salesforce, that's like this, the, the <laughs> that's like one of those <laughs> software engineer. Uh, it's like a forward horror story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, app flow came, uh, came out like, literally like right when we got this this gig and it, and the the thing was how do we take uh how do we take lead data that's coming into our api and ship it over to salesforce it seems like a, a beautiful case for app flow uh we must have been like user number five of app flow because it was <laughs> it was that kind of experience including uh, the internal that, users yeah <laughs> right, right yeah <laughs> Uh, so it, it mostly worked and uh, there was a lot of problems. Um, and, and, you know, we do our, but when we're dealing with the cloud, we, we are heavy users of AWS support. They're great. Um, and uh, a, a lot of those bugs got fixed. Uh, we ended up uh, actually calling the Salesforce APIs directly ourselves afterwards. Um, just because I think we were a little early for that use case. Um, but like, you know, that's the risk as a, as an early adopter of managed services is sometimes they're not, they're not fully baked. Um, so that, that was a little bit scary. Uh, I have a lot of stories about just non serverless, uh, dealing with the legacy system. Uh, uh, when your settlement accounts down a million dollars, uh, it's scary at first, (laughs) But when you do it a few times, it becomes not so scary. Yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh man, that's fun. Yeah, that that story on AppFlow. Um, yeah, I, I guess in my sense, um, man, AWS is so good at just like those core fundamental building blocks, like compute, Lambda, Dynamo. You know, like you're saying, a B tree, Kinesis streams, S3. Like those things are good. But like the sassier it gets, the more higher level it gets. I think. Um, it's it's just a little trickier for them. It's more hit and miss, I would say, than compared to like those fundamental building blocks. And then you build the domain specific stuff um, on top of it. So yeah, that made that's what I was sort of thinking of when I heard that. Um, yeah. One yeah. one thing you mentioned earlier, this was a, this was a while back. When you're talking about all the different teams maybe building their own stuff, and you mentioned maybe one chose QLDB. So QLDB, Quantum Ledger Database from AWS. How does that compare with with twisp and um and and what you all are doing there that's an awesome question because i i think uh i think qldb is like one of those well the word ledger is so overloaded that uh we need to figure out a way to describe what a ledger is qldb is a great append only data structure um that gives you uh cryptographic proofs of of tamper evidence um, so for us, we think of QLDB as a Merkle tree as a service and less as a database. If you look at QLDB from a, a database lens, uh, it becomes less attractive. Um, it can only handle 1,500 concurrent transactions uh, in a 
card settlement use case, you might have hundreds of thousands of card transactions uh, landing on you all at once. And those batch use cases still be much struggle. Uh, another thing would be uh, the the 40 table limit of all time. Uh, it's really hard to write legacy software on a platform that only gives you 40 tables. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so it has some constraints that are uh, just a, a little bit too tight to use in an accounting use case. Um, for that's hooked up to the, the financial networks. Now, some of our customers and, and some of the uh, folks that we've talked to have built those systems on top of QLDB uh, and they've worked around those constraints with like sharding and, uh, and, and smart load balancing and, and, and things of that nature, uh, sh- strategies like that. Um, but for, for us, we look at QLDB as, hey, it's a Merkle tree as a service. We can use it to generate uh, uh, tamper-evident logs. And uh, that's how we use it, is uh, g- generate hashes and, and show that our, our system uh, hasn't diverged from uh, what QLDB says that our system, uh, system is. People have... Uh, People like those types of features. Uh, I don't know how often someone runs the proof endpoints on QLDB yeah. <laughs> for an auditor, uh, but it's it's a nice to have in the back pocket. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen you know there are a lot of people that are that say hey, it's QLDB is is it, it's got some really great interesting use cases. It's always tricky to to like actually tease those out and find what those are. So that, that was that's helpful for me. Um, yeah, and this has just been. A great conversation overall. I I love people that just like really know a domain really well, and I, you know you've been working in this area for a long time, and I'm seeing I'm sure have seen a lot of uh, a lot of things, and now you know building something to to make that easier for for a lot of folks. You know, um, I think it's great. So so thanks for coming on and and for discussing this. Um, anything you want to share about I guess like where Twist is going or anything you're particularly excited about um, going forward? Uh, yeah. So. Our ultimate goal is to manage all the financial data for all companies. And so for us, that's going to be creating world-class developer experience uh, where developers, it's just a a nice fit in the toolbox uh, for dealing with financial problems uh, in in products. And then also bridging that gap between the developer uh, and the engineering product teams and the CFO office. the, the thing we want to see go away is companies having to move money into uh, oper- from operational accounts into uh, settlement accounts to make up for losses that they can't explain. And the best way to do that is to have uh, an accounting system that uh, knows as much as, about the world as possible. And so uh, bridging that, that communication gap between those two functions of businesses are what really excites me, uh, having been in the, in the uh, trenches myself. Uh, a few times in that, in those types of uh, in those types of uh, challenges, I, I, it gets me excited um, to to actually solve that and have the time and headspace to go build tools that make that happen. Awesome, that's great to hear. Well, everyone listening, you know, go go to go check out Twist T W I S P uh, if, if you're in the in the market for something like that. Um, Mike Parsons, CTO and co-founder of Twist. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Alex, thank you so much.